teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from the series, Game of Thrones, The Rise of David. In this series, we look at how God removed Saul from the throne and took David, a simple shepherd boy, and made him the king of Israel. Today's text is going to be coming out of 1 Samuel chapter 26, and it's actually going to run through chapter 28, verse 2, where we continue to look at the life of David. To orient us, I'm not going to read all of those chapters, obviously. I'm just going to read 1 Samuel chapter 27, verse 1, which is kind of a, <laughs> a central verse in this section, and it's the, part, the verse I'm actually going to spend the most time on. But we'll be looking overall at 1 Samuel 26 through chapter 28, verse 2. I'll be reading again, 1 Samuel 27, 1. This will be the New International Version you can follow on the screen. Hear now the word of your covenant Lord. But David thought to himself, one of these days I will be destroyed by the hand of Saul. The best thing I can do is to escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will give up searching for me anywhere in Israel, and I will slip out of his hand. One of the great uh, Greek myths that many of you have heard of, uh, even if you've never uh, read the exact story, is the story of Oedipus. And in it, he was born to a king named uh, King Laius and Queen Jocasta, and the oracle had told the king, his father, that if you ever have a son, any son you have is going to kill you. Well, this put fear into the king's heart, so he sent the baby off to be exposed, to be laid out and left to die. But the servant couldn't do this. He gave them to someone else, to another couple, and this other couple, it turns out, were actually another king and queen down in Thebes, and eventually he was told, uh, Oedipus himself went to the Oracle of Delphi, and he was told, you're going to kill your father and marry your mother. And so Oedipus, driven by fear, flees away from the man and woman who have raised him because he does not want to kill his father and marry his mother. So he figures, if I just get away, it'll prevent me from doing this. Well, as he travels, he meets and argues with a stranger, and he kills the stranger. And then he eventually gets back down to uh, Thebes, where he was from, and he finds that they're mourning the loss of the king there. And he ends up marrying the queen of the town. And then he later learns the one he marries, the queen, is in fact his mother, Jocasta, and the stranger he had met and killed was actually his father. And this is where you get the whole, you know, Freud came up with the Oedipus complex and all of that sort of stuff. The reason I bring this Greek myth up, however, is the characters in it are all driven by fear. The reason that the king had tried to expose the child was he was afraid if I let the child be here, the child's going to kill me. When Oedipus hears he's going to kill his father and, and marry his mother, he flees from them thinking that's going to prevent him from doing it, but actually it's the very flight that causes it. In every case, they are responding out of fear, and in every case, that response of fear creates bigger problems and actually ends up fulfilling the prophecy. So, I'm bringing this up because today we are going to see David, the fugitive, for the first time really acting out of fear. And we're going to see how this response of fear in David, just like in Oedipus' life, 
drives him to actions that create all kinds of problems. And then we'll have to see how God's going to resolve that for us. Now, as we dive into our text, and we're going to be looking at 1 Samuel 26 here, uh, begin, I want to remind us of the background because you know, we've been covering a lot of material here with David. And we begin by looking at God's faithful protection of David. Before we come to chapter 27, verse 1, where we're going to see what, how David responds, I want to remind us of everything we've seen. God has faithfully protected David from the beginning. If you remember, David told us when he was a shepherd in 1 Samuel 17, this is verses 34 to 37, he had described why he was not afraid to face Goliath. And the reason he was, he said, look, I was a shepherd, and when I was out there, a lion or a bear would come down and take from the flock and, and steal one of the, the sheep. But I wasn't afraid, he tells us in verse 27, because the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear is also going to deliver me from the hand of this Philistine, Goliath. So David says, look, when I was a shepherd, God faithfully protected me. He delivered me from the lion and the bear. It was not my skill that struck them down. It was God's faithful protection. And if you remember, when David was actually, when we first meet him in chapter 16, um, when Samuel goes to him, David had been anointed by the Holy Spirit with power. So God had already been with David when he was a young shepherd boy. But then after that, when he's anointed to be the king of Israel, the first time we read David's name, you remember, is in 1 Samuel 16, 13, where we read Samuel took the horn of oil, anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. So the same God who had faithfully delivered David the shepherd has now added to it the anointing of the Holy Spirit so that David is under the power of God. And that's why when we turn to 1 Samuel 17, the whole thing with Goliath, you remember everyone is afraid of Goliath, but David comes up and David the shepherd, David who's been anointed by the Spirit of the Lord can't understand why they're afraid. And so when Goliath taunts David and threatens him because in naturally looking at it, if you just look at it with your eyes, Goliath is clearly the one who's going to triumph over David. But David knows the battle does not depend on that. In verses 45 to 47 of chapter 17, uh, he says, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you've defied. And this day, the Lord will hand you over to me, and I will strike you down, and I will cut off your head. And in verse 47, he continues, says, all those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. So notice David's confidence before Goliath is not, I've train longer or harder than you have. It's not that I've got better weapons than you do, because neither of those things were true. David's confidence is it's not up to sword and spear and javelin. It's not up to who's got greater skill as a warrior. It depends on who Yahweh has anointed, and he has anointed me, and therefore I will strike you down, and you will be fed to the, the birds and animals of the field today, not me." It's not strength or experience. It's not the amount of weapons. The battle is the Lord's. He is the one who determines victory. And that's why David strikes down Goliath by the power of God. And as we've also gone through the story from that point, you remember David then leads the armies and becomes more and more popular. And Saul becomes jealous and he's been trying to kill David for years. This point in our story has taken probably about a decade of time. For a decade, Saul has been after David, chasing him. He delivered him, you remember when Saul threw the spears twice at David, 
and he misses David at point-blank range while David is busy playing an instrument because God is protecting him. He kept David safe when they were coming to the house, and Saul's daughter deceived the soldiers so that David could get away. All the years we've tracked over this decade of David running as a fugitive, and God has kept him safe so that Saul either did not know where David was or when Saul came, God delivered David, uh, or delivered Saul into his hands. You remember particularly the incident in the cave, where of all of the caves, and there are thousands of them out there, Saul wanders into the cave where David and his army stand. David has the chance to kill Saul, but he does not. He says, I can't do that. He's the Lord's anointed. God will take care of Saul on his own. You remember then the Nabal incident. So we, we were seeing chapter after chapter of this. David learns in that incident when Nabal the fool, who acts just like Saul, you remember David almost acted out to defend himself, but Abigail, the righteous woman, comes along and convinces David, you do not have to do this. God has protected you. You are in the bundle of the living, held by the hand of God. Anyone who tries to hurt you, God himself will deal with David. You don't have to raise a hand. This is the background of all David's gone through and it's lasted for a decade. And then in chapter 26, which we didn't read today, but it's the beginning of our text, we again find Saul chasing David and once again, God delivers Saul into David's hands. You notice in 1 Samuel 26, verses seven and eight, uh, Saul and his army are asleep at night and they don't know where David is, but David knows where they are. He sees them as they're sleeping, and we read that David and Abishai went uh, to the army by night, and there was Saul lying asleep inside the camp with his spear stuck in the ground near his head. So there's not only Saul, but the weapon they would need. They could kill Saul with his own weapon if they want. And notice it tells us that Abner and the soldiers are lying around him, and in verse 8, Abishai says to David, today God has delivered your enemy into your hands. Now let me pin him to the ground with one thrust of my spear. I won't strike him twice. God has delivered Saul to your hand again, David. You let him go in the cave. You don't have to let him go again. Just give the word, David. I, it won't take two blows. It'll be quick. It'll be clean. He'll be dead. And there won't be any more problem. But David, in that moment, says in verses 9 to 11, we can't do that, Abishai. He says he's the Lord's anointed if I, if I touch him, I won't be guiltless. And in verse 10, he says, as surely as the Lord lives, the Lord himself will strike him. I don't have to do this because God will take care of Saul. And David can say this because he's seen God doing it for a decade. He's watched God care for him and deliver him time and time again. And this time, you notice, there's no cutting off the corner of the robe. He doesn't touch anything on Saul's person. He simply says, I will not touch the Lord's anointed. Now, one might wonder, how is it that David and Abishai are sitting here talking next to the king and nobody's standing up and stopping this? Well, we don't have to wonder. We're told in verse 12 why. We're told that David took the spear and the water jug near the head and they left. No one saw or knew about it, nor did anyone wake up. And here's why. They were all sleeping because the Lord had put them into a deep sleep. It doesn't matter how many guys Saul's got. It doesn't matter how well trained they are. It doesn't matter what their plans are. God said, you're going to sleep. And that's it. You're asleep. 
David is utterly protected. I mean, he can wander into the enemy's camp because they're not even awake. It doesn't matter what they do. God is sovereignly protecting David. Saul cannot harm him no matter how hard he tries. I mean, you have to see this in the text. When Saul's got to use the bathroom, the guy that's standing there in the outhouse is David, waiting to kill him. When Saul's trying to find him, he's always on the wrong side of the mountain. God is always warning David when he needs to leave. And here the last time, Saul is put into a deep sleep. He can't even wake up to protect himself, nor can anyone else. This is what God has done for David, and it's gone on for a decade. And at the end of this, at the end of chapter 26, Saul speaks to David and says this, when David calls out and says, Saul, you're, you're chasing me and you have no need. I've not done anything wrong. God's delivered you into my hand again, and I didn't do it. And then Saul replies in verse 25 and says, may you be blessed, my son David. You will do great things and surely triumph. You're going to win, David. Even I recognize and see this. And so David went his way and Saul returned home. Now, I've labored to bring all this up because I want us to see that David is sovereignly blessed and protected. He does not have to fear because Yahweh is going to care for and deliver him from all dangers. It does not matter what Saul does. The battle is not Saul's, nor is the battle David's. The battle is Yahweh's, and Yahweh has decreed there's only one rule in the game between Saul and David, and that rule is David wins. That's the position David is in, and God has done this for a decade. I've spent five minutes, but this is a decade. Over and over and over and over again, God has sovereignly protected and delivered David. Now, we've seen David in great faith. And one would think he's going to hold on and do that. But let me ask a question. Have any of you ever responded one day in faith and then the next way find yourself giving way to fear? We see this over and over again. Okay, we could go through other biblical stories. One moment, Abraham is the man of faith. The next minute, it's Sarah, tell him you're my sister. Elijah, 400 prophets. And then the next minute, he's running away and hiding in a cave because the queen's angry with him, right? Over and over, we see this. Well, this is where the story turns, and David, in spite of that whole decade I just went over, finally gives way to fear. And notice, this is 1 Samuel 27, 1, and why it's a critical piece of text in our story. Notice what happens. 1 Samuel 27, verse 1, these are ominous words. But David thought to himself, okay? David thought to himself. Don't, if, if you're taking notes, underline, highlight, put stars by that because that's trouble, okay? This is trouble right here. In the past, whenever David is being pursued by Saul, what did David do? What did we see over and over again that he would do? David sought the Lord. David inquired of the Lord what he should do. I'm going to go ahead and give you a clue. Nowhere in chapter 27 or 28 do we read about David inquiring of the Lord. Nowhere. It's as if God is completely out of the play. He's no longer there. What David is doing is not seeking God, not seeking God's word. David is thinking within himself. And fear 
arises because David looks within himself rather than looking to Yahweh. Fear takes root in David because David is trusting in his own thoughts rather than God's word. God's word didn't change. There's no change between the last verse of chapter 26 and the first verse of chapter 27. It's not like God said, you know, I've been rethinking my covenant with you, David. Nothing's changed except David has stopped thinking about God's covenant promises and has started thinking within himself. And it's important for you and I to grasp because we live in a culture that tells us the solution is found by thinking within. Look within to the divine spark. Look within for the resources you need. But looking within does not lead to faith, but rather to fear. Faith is found by looking outside of ourselves to God and his covenant promises. I remind you, our culture says your problem is outside of you and your salvation goes by looking within. And that is exactly backwards. Your biggest problem is not outside you. David's biggest problem was not Saul. Yahweh can just put Saul to sleep. David's biggest problem was David. Your biggest problem is you. And my biggest problem is me. And salvation is not found by looking within. It's by looking outside of ourselves. It's by looking for an external rescue that comes to us apart from our own works, apart from ourselves. And David, who has had a decade of seeing God do this and has been looking, suddenly is not seeking Yahweh. He's thinking within himself. And that is trouble. And so notice the path of fear as he looks within himself, the content of his fear is the very first thing that David thinks. What he thinks is, one of these days I will be destroyed by the hand of Saul. Lest you think I'm putting too much into David thinking within himself, notice the content of his thoughts. It's not, you know, God has promised I will sit on the throne. But what does David think when he looks within himself? Look, God has delivered me time and time again. Yes, God delivered me from the lion. Yes, God delivered me from the bear. Yes, God delivered me from Goliath. Yes, God delivered me from Saul's spears. Yes, God gave me a faithful friend in Jonathan. Yes, God warned me every time Saul tried to kill me. Yes, God delivered me from the Ziphites time and again when they have tried to betray me over. Yes, God delivered me from the Philistines. Yes, God has delivered me from Saul in the cave. He delivered me from Nabal. He delivered me from Saul again. Yes, all of that is true, but I have looked within myself now. And when I look within myself, what I realize is one of these days, Yahweh's going to fall asleep. It's not going to be Saul. Yahweh's going to go to sleep. And when that happens, Saul will destroy me. And friends, ultimately, fear is telling David what the truth is. And David's believing his fear. Fear is telling David that you are not going to survive this. And ultimately, this is a denial of God's word of promise because God has promised that David will sit on the throne. So it doesn't matter what Saul does, God has promised. He has declared this will happen. And so David need not fear. But in essence, what David is doing is he's hearing the serpent's voice. He's hearing the same thing Eve heard in the garden. Did God really say Hath God actually said to you, David, that you will sit on the throne? And like us, when David hears that voice, faith melts and fear rises up. You ever been in that place? 
I mean, and when you start hearing that voice, it doesn't matter how clear God's command was to Eve. Everything in the garden is yours. It's not that one tree. By the time she's listening to the serpent's voice, everything is twisted and turned upside down. And it doesn't matter what God's covenant promise to David is and how many times he has fulfilled that promise to David time and again. David is now hearing the voice of fear. And so he gives way to fear in spite of all the times God has kept his word and delivered David. And instead of doubting God's word of promise, what David should have doubted was his own doubts. Okay, this is important for us. We live in an age that values skepticism and doubting. Do we call it blind doubting or blind faith? That's completely backwards. Completely backwards. Here's what's blind. Your doubts and mine. What sees is faith, but not according to our culture. According to our culture, you are most reasonable when you are most filled with doubt. Either our culture's right or God is. One or the other. And you and I and David would do well to doubt our doubts and cling to God's word. When God has said, that's it. You remember the old saying, God said it, I believe it, therefore it's so? No, no, not true. God said it, Therefore, it's so. I can believe it, not believe it, walk according to it. Not. God's word of promise is not dependent upon me. God's word of promise is dependent upon nothing other than his faithful character. But David, because he's thinking within himself, because he's hearing that serpent's hiss, is now doubting the word of God. He's doubting God's promise. And again, notice it's not even just at this point that he's only got the naked promise of God. Has God not shown him time and time and time again that God will deliver him? But all that is swept away. And it would seem crazy if I hadn't found myself acting the exact same way. Now, notice the plans that David makes, therefore, in verse 1. Uh, because he's doubting God's word. He says in verse 1, the best thing I can do is to escape to the land of the Philistines. So according to David, now that he's reasoning this out in his mind, the best thing that could possibly happen is I go live among the pagan enemies of God's people. That's as good as it can get for me. Really, David, that's as good as it can be. God who anointed you at the hand of the prophet Samuel, whose word never failed, who promised you were the king, the one who put the Holy Spirit on you, the one who made you mighty in the face of the giant Goliath, and the best thing that can happen now, the best option for you is go live among the enemies of God's people. Does that make any sense at all? See, and think about this, what it means is, how can this possibly work out? How are you going to live among the enemies of God's people? What, what's going to happen while you are there? How is this not going to require sin upon sin upon sin? Just to make it day by day. And by the way, what's going to happen when the inevitable happens and they fight against Israel? What? 
what are you going to do at that point, David? But when you give in and you think within yourself, rather than trusting the word of God, suddenly, you know, the best thing that could happen, here's the best thing that could happen to me, I'll go live among the enemies of God's people. When we begin to doubt God's word and give way to fear, the inane, the insane, the irrational will suddenly appear rational and sane. You got to hear how crazy this is. I'm going to go live among the Philistines, the people who I have spent my entire adult life fighting. I'm now going to go live among them because what could go wrong? I got a better question. What could possibly go right with this plan? David, this is a crazy, you remember you've already been there once and you had to crawl around in the dirt and let spit run down in your beard and act like a nut job just to get out of that. But you now think the best thing that could happen is to go back among them. And I would really get on David except for when I've looked in my own life and suddenly that which was insane and irrational made sense to me because that's what sin does. It makes that which is just absolutely irrational seem to be reasonable. If you don't believe that, look at the slide of our culture over the last few hundred years. The more we have doubted the word of God, the more insane choices we make as a culture. To where now black is white and white is black and hot is cold and cold is hot and bitter is sweet and sweet is bitter. I mean, Seriously, look around us and listen to people sometimes. And I keep waiting for us all to start laughing, saying this has obviously been a huge joke. Except for it's not. Because when you're driven by doubt of God's word and by fear, that's what happens. And so the outcome of all of this is David's not thinking and seeking God. He's not listening to God's word. He's thinking within himself. He's giving way to fear. Here's the outcome in verses 2 and 4. So David and the 600 men with him left and went over to Achish, son of Maok, the king of Gath. And when Saul was told that David had fled to Gath, he no longer searched for him. So David, who's being driven by fear rather than by faith, settles among the enemies of God's people. And notice, he does receive the immediate desired end because sometimes when we act out of fear, the, the immediate thing we're afraid, we, we kind of get out of that fix. But the problem is, is we're out of the frying pan and into the fire. That's all we've really done. It feels good the second you're leaping, but the problem is you're going to eventually land. And when you land, your problem is going to be far, far worse than it was before you started. And that's exactly what's going to happen to David. He receives the immediate desired end, which is Saul stops chasing him. Okay? And, and David got that. But it is going to come at a massive price that we're about to start reading about. Because fear always exacts a terrible price. Always. When we respond in fear rather than in faith, what we end up doing is putting ourselves in, in situations that require greater and greater compromise and sin. Now, <clears throat> David, we're told in verses 8 and 9, David and his men go up and they raid the Geshurites, the Gerzites, the Amalekites, from ancient times, these people who lived in this land were told. In verse 9, we're told, whenever David attacked an area, he did not leave a man or a woman alive, but he took sheep and cattle, donkeys and camels and clothes, and then he returned to Achish. Now, what he's done here is he had asked Achish, can I go live somewhere else to be away from you? And Achish led him. And throughout this, there's no question, Achish appears foolish through this. There's, 
there's a thing that this king of God's uh, enemies is being taken for a fool, and, and he's being duped over and over again by David. But notice the problem. David is going out and raiding other people, and when it says he came back to Achish, he's giving Achish spoils. What he's doing by his actions every day is he's enriching and empowering the enemies that he's later on going to have to try and put down, and that's exactly what we do. When we give way to fear, we start empowering the very things we need to be delivered from is what happens, and David is doing this. And notice furthermore... Um, that he's lying to Achish. Achish believes him, but again, is Achish's gullibility any excuse for David being a rampant liar day after day after day? There's just simply not. The sad thing for me is I read several commentators who tried to somehow excuse David's behavior here. There's not excuse for it. The point of the text is David's gotten himself in a world of trouble. Notice furthermore, what has he got to do to cover up his actions? He's got to kill everybody. He's got to wipe out the entire town. Does this sound like God's anointed deliverer? This is more like David's now acting like Saul. He's acting like the godfather or something. Uh, To cover his actions, he's killing everyone. And so the situation into which fear has driven David is requiring him to make increasingly serious moral compromises. I'll go live among the Philistines. Okay, I can't really live among them. Can I get another town over here? Okay, I've got to come up with some kind of way, so I'm going to go off on raids to take stuff. I'm going to have to give it back to the king of the Philistines. I'll keep some of the stuff for myself. But now I've got a problem because now I've got to hide from him what I'm doing. So sorry, I'm going to have to kill every single person in the village. All of you I'm going to wipe out because that's what's required to cover my sin and my compromise. Unrepentant sin always leads to further sin. Okay, this is kind of Shakespeare, you know, oh, what a tangled web we weave when at first we practice to deceive, right? Because the the point of that is when you start spinning this whole thing out, you either, until the day that you come clean, you have to keep spinning more and more and more lies, more and more deceits. And oftentimes the sins that are required to cover up the previous sin become bigger and bigger and bigger. And that's exactly what David is doing. To, to keep things covered and to stay away from Saul, who God had protected him from for a decade. David is now wiping out and killing entire villages who haven't done anything to David. But he's required to do it. David, the anointed deliverer, has now become David, the marauding destroyer. And all of this because he listened to his doubts rather than God's word. And it gave way to fear. Now, finally... We read, and this is why we read the first two verses of chapter 28, because here's where the inevitable is going to come true. David's getting away with this, and he's doing it for a year and four months. This isn't for a week or two, for 16 months. David's running around marauding, raiding, and wiping out entire groups of people, lying to the Philistines, doing everything else. And then what should have been David's greatest fear happens in 1 Samuel 28, verse 1, where we read, in those days the Philistines gathered their forces to fight against Israel. David, didn't you know this was going to happen? I mean, they've been fighting for years. And notice what happens. Achish said to David, you must understand that you and your men will accompany me in the army. You're going to go down and you're going to fight against Israel with me, David. And then notice in verse 2, David's response, then you'll see for yourself what your servant can do. And Achish replies, very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. So let me ask a question. 
How on earth does David think this is going to end well? How's this going to end well? What happens if he meets Saul on the battlefield? I felt guilty for cutting the corner of his robe. Now I'm suddenly going to try and kill him and hack him to pieces on the battlefield. How have we gotten here, David? What a mess. And Achish says, here's the reward at the end. You'll get to be my bodyguard. God said, I've anointed you. You're going to be king of Israel. David's now going to become a bodyguard for the king of the enemies of God and his people. But is that what sin does to us? The king is reduced to being a bodyguard in the service of someone else. Okay? If you think of a modern thing, this is where in the whole Star Wars epic where Anakin Skywalker goes from being the deliverer to now all of a sudden he's the evil servant of the the dark guy. David's in the same exact spot now. How is he going to do this? The dark guy. You like that? That's, that's a literary term. I got that one from Liam. The dark guy. Well, I didn't want to say Sith Lord. Most people wouldn't know what that was. So you got you to picture the tension here. David, by his fear, has put himself between the rock and the hard place. David, because he doubted God's word, has willingly put himself between the hammer and the anvil. It's where he put himself. It's where he chose for himself to be. And we're sitting at this point in verse 2 thinking, what's going to happen? Is David actually going to slaughter his own people? Will he now slay Saul in battle? If he does it and he turns on the Philistines and Israel wins, he's now living in Israelite territory, which is what he was trying to avoid in the first place. There literally is no good way out for David in this mess. What is going to happen? Is he, uh, is he going to betray Achish, who's foolishly helped and trusted him? Because even if he does it, Achish has been nothing but good to David. Any way you look at this, there is no good way out. Will David really become just simply a mere bodyguard for the, for the king here? This is where, as it were, the episode ends. Okay, again, if this were a TV show, it would fade to black and we'd say, you know, tune in next week to find out what's going to happen to David. But I want you to feel the force of this. He's in a mess. There is no good way out. And it's no good way out because David, rather than seeking Yahweh, thought within himself. And when he starts thinking within himself, this is the best he can come up with, which might be a clue to you and I. That Because when I think within myself, I can really find myself in a huge mess and say, how did I get here? Well, here's how I got here. I thought within myself rather than listening to God's word. I doubted God's word rather than doubting my doubts. I responded to fear rather than living by faith. So we'll come back and see next week how's David going to get out of it. Little clue is God's going to deliver him, <laughs> which is the only way out of this mess. But it's going get, to get actually worse before it gets better. Now, let's talk, what does this mean for us? How do we apply this? There's really a simple question out of this text. Am I driven by fear or led by faith? Notice carefully how I'm putting that. Fear doesn't lead you, it drives you. 
Faith doesn't drive you, it leads you. Am I driven by fear or am I led by faith? Now, again, don't get too much on David because we see this time and again in Scripture. I, I mean, I'm, I'm astounded. One of the greatest ones to me is Elijah. After all he does with the prophets of Baal, where he mocks Baal, it hasn't rained in three and a half years, and God has done all this, and then Jezebel says, you made me upset, and the guy runs and hides in a cave. And I'm like, really? I mean, you just called fire out of heaven. How about doing that on Jezebel? But I've ended up in the same cave and done the same thing. We all are prone to do this. So the real question should be, what are the areas where I'm being driven by fear rather than being led by faith? Because the crazy thing is, is sometimes I watch and you're giving way to fear and I'm like, why would you be afraid of that? But then the next day you're looking and asking me in my own area. So think through some areas. Do I, uh, for, for young people here, this was a big one. It's, it's not particularly one when you're in your mid-50s, but I remember when I was young, is God ever going to provide a spouse for me? Okay? And if you're married, you have to wipe the dust off and remember that one. And I was convinced if God did provide a spouse for me, it was going to be somebody that was absolutely horrible, incompatible, that I didn't want. If I trusted God in this, I mean, my loving father was bound to stick me with something really awful, right? Now, that sounds crazy now, especially given who God did give to me. But man, that was a fear that I had. How about my children? I'm, I'm sure no parent in here has ever lost sleep over their kids, right? Let me give you a clue, especially for you who are parenting teenagers. If you are making decisions based on fear about your children, you're going to look like David. You're going to do irrational things that will only serve to drive your kids away from God. My number one piece of advice when I'm called by parents here who are raising teenagers is calm down. Calm down. Come off the ledge. Come back in here with me. But I can say that because I've been on the ledge and the ledge looked really reasonable. Right? Oh God, I got to step off of this into the abyss because otherwise these crazy people I got living with me are going to do something silly. When our kids were teenagers, it was before Facebook, my children were somewhat foolish and didn't think that I could hack all their passwords, which I had done, and I had their MySpace account. And we started finally, we gave up, and I told my kids, okay, change all your passwords because I've hacked them all and I'm no longer going to hack them. And we told parents who were doing that with their kids off at college, they said, let me go ahead and relieve your tension. They are sinning. I'll go ahead and relieve you from that. They are doing that. They are making foolish choices. And you hacking into their account Trying to be unknown is not a wise move. It's not the way to go. You either tell them, when my kids were younger, there was no question. I have the password and I view everything you do. When they hit college age, I had to start shifting things that I was doing. That whole method of parenting by fear almost drove my children away from me and from the kingdom. Thankfully, I woke up in the midst of that. Are you a parent who's parenting by fear? You can't do that. God is faithful to his covenant promises. 
and we cling to those and we live by those and we live by faith, not by fear. How about having enough money or job security? Nobody in America worries about that. How am I going to, who's going to take care of me? Well, I don't know. Jesus said, look at the birds, look at the grass. How many of you think the grass is outside thinking within itself? How am I going to grow? And Jesus' whole point is, look, two, two sparrows are sold for a penny. They're not worth anything. And yet, not one of them falls to the ground apart from the will of the Father. Why are you running around like God doesn't take care of you? There's actually an old song uh, Phil Keggy sang years ago that had a robin and a sparrow talking, and they're saying, look at these crazy people running around. And one of them says to the other, I guess they don't have a father who cares for them like we have. Is that where we're at? Are we driven by fear? What about fear where our culture is going? Is our culture going in some bad places? It is. Let me go ahead and relieve your fears. The thing you're worried where we're going to go is probably exactly where we're going. Go ahead. Just accept it. Okay? Does that mean God has fallen off the throne? Are God's covenant promises suddenly going to fail? Is there going to be some law enacted by our president or our Congress or done by our courts that is suddenly going to say, you know, God has been faithful for thousands of years to keep his promises and the church has marched forward and the gospel has made progress, but this is going to stop the whole deal. Is that going to happen? Now, you laugh and snicker at it, but how many of us go out from here and tomorrow live as if that's the truth? We of all people should not be living in fear. I have no covenant promises that America will survive. It may not. The big, the crazy thing is, in the early church, when we read in the days of the New Testament and say, if you lived as a Christian in, say, 250 A.D., who was your biggest enemy and the people that you had to fear the most? It was the Roman Empire. Well, by the time Rome falls in 410, all the Christians are afraid, how are we going to survive? How is the church going to survive if the Roman Empire falls? I don't know, we did pretty well for 300 years. <laughs> They're trying to crush us. And guess what? Rome fell. How many of you have suffered angst and fear because Rome fell? Did the church survive? It did. Will the church survive whatever happens in our culture over the next few years? If they suddenly begin to persecute you and I because being faithful to the gospel means you are under the anger of our culture, Will God be faithful to us? Is he, I, I want to hear a more robust response. He's going to be faithful to us. And so I don't need to act out of fear and start running around and calling all kinds of dire things happening. Whatever happens, God is sovereign. And it does not matter how much Saul rages, God can put him to sleep. God will watch over and accomplish his purposes and his word. How about for many of us just fear about tomorrow or flying or what's going to happen? I mean, it is true. Could we leave out of here and I die in a terrible car accident on the way home? Could happen. There 
could be an earthquake, there could be a hurricane. I mean, I mean, who knows what could happen? So how do I live in light of that? I mean, how many germs are there floating around in this room right now? Right? See, we've suddenly got enough, you know, we got microscopes, we can look. Guess what? They've all been here for thousands of years. And we've all somehow lived and survived. The point is, whatever your area is, are you being driven by that or do you face that fear and say, you know what, I have no idea what's coming tomorrow, but I do know him to whom I've entrusted that day. I have no idea whether I'm going to have a job, what spouse I'm going to get, what's going to happen, but I know who God is and I know God is faithful. And so in this case, I'm not going to be like David. I'm not going to think within myself, I'm going to listen to God's word. Now, those are all areas where we can do, and uh, think about it, and you can continue filling in the blank. What's your area of fear? Think about that, and then here's the question that we need to answer relative to that fear. Am I nourishing my faith, or am I feeding my fears? Everybody in here's got one. I might have hit yours, or I might not have, but you've got areas where your palms go sweaty, and you worry and you're driven by fear. And so the question is, do I nourish my faith or feed my fear? Do I meditate on my own inadequacies? Or do I look at God's sovereignty? What if David had stood before Goliath and we had read, and Goliath rushed towards David and David thought within himself? It had been the shortest section of a king of Israel ever. Because all we'd have read is, and then David died. But see, David didn't do that. He meditated and he looked and he said, you look like a big guy, but not next to my God. You're nothing. Do we meditate on our fears, on our own inadequacies, or do we meditate on God's sovereignty? Do I meditate on my fears or on God's covenant promises? Which do I do? Which occupies my thoughts? The thing I'm afraid of or God's promises? Do I meditate on an uncertain future or do I rehearse God's faithfulness to me in the past? See, David's sitting there and saying, man, I've been thinking, I mean, you know, one of these days Saul could. When what he should have been thinking is, for a decade God has delivered me over and over and over and over again. He has delivered me. And at the moments where I wavered, Jonathan was there. Abigail was there. God always sent somebody to keep me. And if David would have done that, this whole section would have been very different. Been very, very different. But David didn't. He started worrying about an uncertain future rather than rehearsing and meditating God's faithfulness in the past. And finally, do I listen to those who feed my fears or those who stir my faith? Are there people around who will try to feed fear? Yes. It's called most of the internet. There are professional fear mongers. It doesn't matter. Do you remember when it was, if you didn't put um, seat belts on the passenger, you know, that was the end of the world. And then we got them passed, and the same group of people then started saying, oh, but this has actually got a problem now, so now we got different warning labels. Have you ever looked at warning labels, all the things? Or you listen to the medications when they finally, after they've been tested and approved over like a 20-year process, and the commercial lasts for two minutes, and you get like 10 seconds of what the drug does, and then like a minute and 50 seconds of all the warnings? 
you know, that you've got like a 1 in 14 billion chance of having happen? There are always people who will feed your fears. Do you listen to them or do you surround yourself with people who will say, God is faithful? What God has promised, God will do. And I won't, just for bonus, I'll throw it in. Which kind of person are you? Do you feed people's fears or do you nourish their faith? Ultimately, what we're talking about is those who feed their fear are going to be ruled and driven by fear, while those who feed their faith will be led by God's Spirit. So, we're going to come to the table. And we're going to come here to feed our faith at this table. Because here we're going to meditate on God's faithful promises. God promised a seed in the garden. From you, Eve, one is going to come and he's going to fix this. And the whole Old Testament is a story of God faithfully keeping that promise. And at times it looked so dark. But when we break this bread and we pour out this cup, we are feeding our faith by reminding ourselves no matter how dark it looked at moments, God faithfully kept his word. And you and I are here because he faithfully kept it. And we could fast forward from the time of the new covenant when Jesus instituted this. How dark did it look the next day as he's on the cross and all the disciples have fled? It looks like hope is lost. And even three days later as the disciples walk down the road to Emmaus and they're like, we thought he was the one. But we've been thinking within ourselves. And what does Jesus have to tell them? How dull and slow are you to believe everything that God has promised in his word? Haven't you read? I had to suffer and then enter my glory. And we're told when he took the bread, he gave thanks and he broke it and he gave it to them. They recognized him in the breaking of the bread. So we're going to do the same thing this morning. And whatever fear you have came to mind as we did this, I want you to confess, and I want you to rehearse God's faithfulness. The same God that delivered his son over. Paul tells us, if God graciously gave his son, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? How will he not deliver us, no matter what it is? For what I receive from the Lord, I pass on to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, when he'd given thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And the same way after supper, he took the cup, and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out so that your sins may be forgiven. Drink from this, all of you, for as often as you eat this bread, and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, as we come to the table this morning, we come asking you to feed our faith. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would take these simple elements of bread and juice and that you would minister to us. And Lord, where there's fear, Father, I pray that you would shine the light of your word and your covenant promises and you would dispel the darkness of fear and doubt Father, that you would again 
nourish us here at your table. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. As you get the elements, please hold on to them. And again, I encourage you, meditate. What's the area of fear? And let's confess it to the Lord, rehearse his faithfulness, and receive his covenant provision. Jesus, as we hold this bread in our hands, we are reminded of the fearsome price you had to pay for our sin. Lord, among those sins is our own fears, the areas where we have been driven. And we've oftentimes even taken a self-imposed exile from the sun of your presence and your favor into the dark shadows of despair as we have doubted your goodness towards us, your faithfulness, your perfect love that casts out fear. And yet, Jesus, as we confess our sins humbly, we are sorrowful for those very things. We also have joy ring through. For even at the cost of, Father, you giving your son, you did not flinch, but you gave him willingly up for us. Jesus, even as you wrestled through in Gethsemane, and realize the awful burden of bearing all of our sin and the righteous wrath of the Father. You did not flinch back, but said, not my will, but thine be done. We are so grateful, O our God, for your redeeming work in Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, knowing that you are such a faithful God, we do not hide our sin. We do not make excuses for our fears. Father, rather we come to you and we confess it openly. We ask for you to cleanse and forgive us because of the sacrifice of Christ. Take and eat. And Lord, now we take the cup of the covenant, for you are a covenant-making and a covenant-keeping God. You have been faithful. Lord, each of us can rehearse not only your faithfulness through all of Scripture and then sending Jesus for us, but your faithfulness in our own very lives. Lord, first and foremost, we are here because you have been faithful to us to open our eyes and call us out of death into life, to call us from darkness into light, to call us from being those who are far away to those who are your very covenant people. And then, Lord, you have time and again been faithful to us even when we have been unfaithful to you. And so, Lord, this cup of the covenant reminds us how faithful you have been. And we ask, Lord, that you would renew our faith, that we would go out and this week, when the serpent would whisper in our ear and say, hath God said, we would reply and say, yes, he has. And my God is faithful to his word. Holy Spirit, minister to us to build up our faith. Take and drink. Spirit of the living God, I pray that today we have looked at the Word and we have come to the table, that you would use these things to nourish us. Lord, I pray this week your Word of promise would be close in our ears, that we would hear that we would cling to it. And Father, I pray that we would never doubt your goodness, 
and your love and all that you're doing. Lord, sometimes we don't understand. We, we, we can't grasp what you're working out in your providence. But Lord, I pray that you would give us the grace to doubt our doubts and believe your word. I pray that you would give us the grace to realize that doubt and fear are blind. Your word and faith are full of sight. Please work that in us, Holy Spirit. We ask in the name of Jesus for the glory of our Father. Amen. Let's stand together. And we're going to conclude with the word of benediction out of Psalm 20. It was, I believe, written by David and written when he was walking in faith. Hear now the word and receive the blessing of God. May the Lord answer you when you are in distress. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help and support from his presence. And may he remember your worship and grant you the deepest desires of your heart. Through Jesus Christ, go in his peace and blessing. Amen. Thanks for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.